with this being the beginning of 2020, I've been thinking about all the things we used to think would happen by 2020. And there's been expert predictions for decades about what life's going to be like in 2020. Like, were the Jetsons said in 2020? I can't remember. I, uh, nobody remembers the Jetsons. So uh, the, the idea was that 2020 would be this super advanced thing. I was looking at all this, this list somebody sent me of, uh, of all the predictions experts got wrong about 2020. Like recently even, in 2014, there was a scientist who said, who said by 2020, we'll all be teleporting. <laughs> like <laughs> immediate transportation from one place to another without actually traveling there. Just the wormhole closes or however they do that. And, and yet I don't see it happening. I would love it. It would make life easier, um, especially as we multi-site and start that second campus. I'd love to teleport from here to Timber Grove and back, but that's not going to happen. Maybe 2022, we'll see. But uh, 2030, who knows? But that's not happening yet, like they said it would. Another prediction um, earlier in the 20th century was that we would, by 2020, be seeing robot therapists. That we wouldn't go to human therapists anymore. We would go see robots. And I've been to therapists who seemed like robots, but they are not. They're human beings, as far as I know, all therapists are as of yet. There was a prediction in uh, the mid-20th century that said, by 2020, we'll all be flying our own helicopters instead of cars. We'll have personal helicopters <laughs> transporting us around. Like, how does traffic work, any of that? I don't know. It sounds pretty cool, but we're not there yet. And, you know, we're a church. We're not Second Baptist Church. And I'm not Ed Young <laughs> with my own helicopter flying around. Not yet. Maybe one day. One day, life goals, all right? So, uh, so then, then, you know, they, they, the last um, prediction that I remember was from earlier, 1931, I think, and then this nutritionist predicted that by 2020, we'd stop drinking coffee. All of us would be done with coffee because we would see how disgusting it is. And I'm like, really? Like, that was the biggest miss of them all because here we are, 2020, Drinking coffee, this sermon wouldn't even be possible without the coffee I consumed. And, you know, we drove cars instead of helicopters to church today. And we still see human therapists and we're not teleporting anywhere. And the biggest lesson in all of this is simply that nobody knows what's coming. No, nobody knows what the future will bring. Nobody knows what tomorrow will bring, much less 2020 or 2030 or 2050. No one knows what to expect. And the way you react and respond to the unexpected in your life will depend on how you are prepared for it. It will almost entirely depend on your outlook, on your faith in God, and on your willingness to reach out for help when you need it. When the storm comes, what will your outlook be? What will your faith in God be like? And will you be willing, humble enough to reach out for the help that you need? So we're starting this new series today that's pretty much about that very thing. Reaching out for the help that you need, being prepared for whatever comes your way. This series is called Beautifully Broken, and for three weeks we're going to be talking about some of those storms that await us, and in particular the internal storms, the toxic patterns of thought that we get ourselves into, that we find ourselves in, like um, addiction or, or depression or anxiety or shame. Today we're talking about depression, which I really hesitated to do this because it's the first Sunday of the year and I'm dropping a depression sermon on you. Like, I don't often have a very 
acute sense of, of occasion in when I plan my sermons. You know, I have a track record, like, like Christmas Eve 2018, when I spent half the sermon talking about how awful Trans-Siberian Orchestra is. And that was pretty much the basis of the sermon. Um, and people left the church because of it and haven't been back. And that's true. And then there was that Mother's Day in 2016 when I talked about porn the whole sermon. And uh, that was a poor choice. <laughs> Poor planning on my part. Um, But the more that I thought about a depression sermon and a series on toxic thinking at the beginning of the year, the more I thought, this is the perfect time. This is the perfect time to think about this. Listen, we're coming off the the holidays when everybody has to be happy all the time. Even if you're not, you have to seem okay. Even if you're not, you put on a brave face, right? And, and, you know, we're starting a new year, and we're all trying to make resolutions and do something different this year than we've done in the past. And we're a church. And I don't think there's any place where this stuff needs to be talked about more than at church, right? And we're a church that's on the cusp of a growth spurt. And I've had this on my heart, heavy, heavy on my heart lately. Like, the story has always been a place of raw honesty, And deep vulnerability. From the very beginning, we've been telling our stories, like laying all of it out there for the whole world to hear. And how do we keep that going as we grow bigger? As we expand to multiple campuses, how can we be sure we don't become a churchy church where we scale up, but we water it down? How can we make sure we hold on to that honesty and vulnerability? And it was in that spirit that in preparation for this series, um, we asked people who call the story home to record videos of themselves telling their deepest and darkest secrets or stories about the struggles that they face as it relates to depression or anxiety or shame. And some brave souls responded and they recorded those videos with their own iPhones at home, which is not easy to do. It's easy to record them. It's not easy then to send them to Pastor Eric and say, yeah, show it to everybody. But they did it, and I commend them for it. And we put together a little sampling of some of the confessions in those videos. I want you to know what kind of brokenness exists in this room, not because it's happening to other people, but, but because I know it's happening to you, and I want you to know you're not alone. So uh, this is a four-minute montage of the videos people sent in. I think that people would probably be pretty surprised to hear that um, I've struggled with, suffered with depression. I have struggled with severe, debilitating anxiety for the majority of my life. I frequently have fallen into a pattern of tragic thinking. One area of struggle for me is the feeling that I will be abandoned. My mom left our family whenever I was in kindergarten, and so I've always had this subconscious feeling that If I didn't try really hard, people in my life uh, would leave me. People would be surprised to know that on the inside, I struggle with all kinds of self-doubt. I have struggled my whole life with uh, compulsive sexual thoughts and behaviors. But it's just hard to over-exaggerate the amount of effort and energy that it has taken for me to maintain this Christian nice guy persona. with this other secret life. My most recent run-in with shame happened about four and a half years ago when I discovered that my husband of 31 years had a porn addiction as well as infidelities. Not only was I devastated about his betrayal, 
but the shame that came with it was debilitating. People would be surprised to know that I struggle with addiction, and with that comes feelings of anxiety, shame, and fear. Addiction to me is an outside sign of an inward struggle, and for me that is the feeling that I'm not good enough. I can't put a finger on why it comes to the surface when it does, but when it does, it's, it's real. Just feeling like you're a screw up and not believing in yourself at all, to the point at which, you know, occasionally you have thoughts about, do you want to keep living? Like, that was my reality. If I make a big mistake, like saying the wrong thing to someone, I'll think about it for days. I'll just let those negative thoughts control me. I grew up with the mentality of, you don't air your dirty laundry in public. I did not want to burden anyone, and that led to the beginning of hiding my feelings deeper and deeper to where the explosion was gonna come, and it did come. The worst part was the isolation. This was something that I couldn't tell a soul, you see. I was diagnosed uh, in 2014 with ADD. I had no idea there was a connection between ADD and depression. I'm not gonna say that it Depression, the depressive thoughts or episodes go away completely, but it's really important for us as Christians to be able to talk about this stuff um, with other Christians and not feel judged or shamed because um, that's where we learn how to fight back against whatever darkness we're facing. Shame can only be healed with vulnerability and in community, and you need other people to pull that out of you. I've learned that shame thrives in secret, and in the shadows it spins lies about who I am. To speak about my pain and shame loosened its grip on me, and I began to reclaim the truth about who I am. When my secret life was discovered, it was the worst day and the best day of my life. It marked the beginning of recovery and the beginning of a new life. Without the benefit of the love and support of my amazing husband, years of intensive therapy and medication, I don't think that I would have made it through. Life isn't fair and life isn't easy. Jesus didn't have life fair. Life wasn't easy for him, but he made it through. I know that I can make it through anything because I have him with me. All right. Uh, again, I want to thank everybody that shared in that way and others that shared that weren't included in the montage. Thank you, because I know it takes courage to do that. I think to go any further with this discussion today about depression, we're going to have to figure out what we mean when we say depression, because part of the stigma that comes along with depression is just this idea that, you know, uh, I get depressed, but I don't have depression. And I understand most of us, when we say depression, what we mean is like the worst form of depression. That's how we define it. And so we sort of pin it in over there so it's not us. And there is a worst form of depression. I know there is a clinical, debilitating, all-encompassing, everyday, just heavy blanket you wear if you have that kind of depression. But depression is more complex than just that. It's a very complex disease, and it touches everyone it touches differently and to varying degrees. And other diseases work the same way. We own that, we acknowledge it. When we, when we hear that someone has cancer, we don't just go, well, it's cancer. I know what that means. No, we, we go, well, what kind of cancer is it? And what stage is it? What's the treatment plan? What's the prognosis? 
Because we know that the news, I have cancer, doesn't always mean the same thing. Cancer is not monolithic. And in the same way, neither is depression. It's not monolithic, y'all. It touches everyone differently to varying degrees and calls for, you know, different kinds of treatment plans and things like that. And so hearing myself in the video talk about my own struggle with depression, it's interesting to me that even I put, I I say it with a filter. If you heard, if you listen close, you, you didn't hear me say, I struggle with depression now. I said, I have struggled with depression. Yeah, because that's, that's easier to say. Like I, it was before, you guys, don't worry. You can still trust me as your pastor. You know, that kind of, it's just crazy thinking on my part. It's toxic thinking, really, that I have to put it in past terms. Listen, it's a struggle that many of us face. Um, and many of us face it every day. And I know Believe me, I know that it's not about getting sad and getting the blues. All of us get that. I'm talking about a pattern of toxic thinking that eventually defines us if it goes unchecked. So we have to know what what we're actually talking about when we talk about depression. One of the most helpful definitions I came across was actually in a phone call with Dr. Kurt Thompson, who's a friend of the story. He lives in Virginia. Um, He wrote The Soul of Shame, and he was on the Maybe God podcast last year with me. Um, And he's a brilliant man. He's coming here on part three of this series to share with us about shame. But he, uh, he told me that his definition of depression is that depression is what happens when we're no longer able to regulate our anxiety, all right? I'm gonna say it again, are you ready? Okay, depression is what happens when we are no longer able to regulate our anxieties, okay? So what that means is um, that depression and anxiety has a connection, a relationship, but anxiety, as Dr. Thompson will tell us, also has a relationship to shame. And so it's almost like, so week one, we're pulling off the the outer layer and dealing with it, and we're going a level deeper next week to talk about anxiety. And then week three, we're talking about the shame that's sort of at the root of all of it. And the relationship looks like this. Look, I get anxious. Anxiety takes over when shame takes over. So when I feel like I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong or fast enough to do everything I need to be do or, or, or I should be doing, I cannot be who I should be. I am not who I should be. Like that's when shame leads to anxiety. And anxiety leads to depression when we can't manage the anxieties that we experience. And so life's out of control. I'm a failure. I can't do it. And that leads us to feelings of despair and depression. And then, of course, when you're depressed, you're ashamed of being depressed. And so it's, it's, it's it's a filthy cycle. And so I, I, I just love this definition. I think it's a helpful, workable definition for us through this series. Now, I think that most people would be surprised to know how much the Bible speaks to mental illness and to toxic thinking, like depression. Um, I, I think most people are too unfamiliar with scripture to know what the Bible really says. And what they see is Christians acting happy all the time, artificially happy. They see through the artificial happiness and they think Christians act so artificially happy because the Bible tells us to. And nothing could be further from the truth. I don't know where Christians got the idea we always have to be happy all the time. We come from a line of martyrs. They were not happy in the mouths of lions and on crosses, y'all. That's not how our movement began. But somehow we've got to this point where Sunday morning you put on the mask or whatever. And that's not the way the Bible 
um, discusses toxic thinking. The Bible is much more honest than most Christians are. The Bible is much grittier than most churches are about this thing. And so if you come here today struggling with any kind of toxic thinking, especially with any form of depression or depressive episodes, listen, I want you to know three things, and I want you to take these three things out of this room with you today and put them in your pocket or keep them handy as if they were weapons for the fight, as if they were ammo for the, for the battle ahead. And the reason preachers say things in threes is because it's easy to remember. There's probably 10 things I could tell you today, but I want you to remember this so that you have it at the ready when the darkness comes again, as it almost certainly will if you struggle with depression. So um, the first thing that the Bible talks about in, the, in, in relationship to this struggle is, uh, is this idea that um, depression and mental illness can be a, uh, a predisposition, right? So um, the, the Bible often says that we come broken. Okay, so this is, people think about original sin as being um, a dark or punishing kind of a theology. Listen, no, it's freedom. Because if you struggle with, with depression or toxic thinking, there's a chance, a good chance, you came prepackaged, pre-wired for that kind of thinking. All right, so when David says, I was broken in my mother's womb, I was sinful in the womb, he's talking about that predisposition in, in Scripture. And we often don't think of the Bible as, as referring to you know, that kind of predisposition, but it does. The Bible also matches up what the latest scientific research is telling us about depression, which is that depression is, um, is often exacerbated or intensified by a lack of connections. Let me tell you what I mean. So... Um, Depression, if you're pre-wired for it or if your circumstances have led you to be depressed, it can be intensified by lack of connection to meaningful community or a lack of connection to meaningful work or a lack of connection to nature itself. All these things have been shown to make depression symptoms worse, right? So the Bible has a lot to say about this struggle, and there are three little reminders that I want to give you. The first one is that you are broken, okay? So this is, it sounds punitive, it sounds dark, but it's just a reminder that God knows your brokenness. So uh, just look at somebody close to you, the person you came here with, and just say, hey, man, you're broken. Go ahead and tell them. Tell them, hey, yeah, be nice. You're broken. All right, so... Take it easy. I just, it's two words. All right? Okay. Y'all are having an all-out discussion. Okay. Okay. So, when the Bible says this, um, it reminds us of this. What, what it's telling us is that God knows that um, we need help, healing, hope. The Bible speaks openly about the importance of our thoughts. And this is, uh, to us, it's obvious, I guess. But it wasn't in the ancient world that, that your thoughts can define you. The idea in the ancient world, and I think for many of us, is that you're not defined by your thoughts. Your thoughts are your thoughts. You can't help it. It's involuntary. What defines you is your actions. 
It's what you do. It's what you accomplish that defines you. Or some people say it's how you feel. It's your emotions that really define who you are. Listen, if you're looking to your actions, your accomplishments, and your emotions for definition, you're being lied to. Those things will lie and deceive you. The true one thing that has the power to define who you are and is the foundation on which we stand is our thoughts. It's what's going on in our mind. And the Bible's clear about this in really in ways that are ahead of its time. So the Bible writers often will um, allude to this, like uh, when uh, uh, Paul writes to the first Christians telling them what to think. There's a very weird passage from Philippians 4.8. He says, listen, whatever's good, you think about it. Whatever's pure, whatever's honorable, just, lovely, commendable, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about those things. And what he's saying is, think about those things as opposed to what you might otherwise be thinking about. So Paul's saying that your thoughts are not involuntary. You can learn to harness them. It's a discipline and it's hard, but you can learn to regulate the way that you think. For some of you, it's going to be harder than others because of that predisposition I talked about, but you can still learn and grow. In fact, according to the gospel, like what it, part of what it means to follow Jesus more deeply is learning to harness those thoughts and having self-control over those thoughts and thinking about um, the things that, uh, that are godly and good. All right. So Paul gives the first Christians this command, but the Bible doesn't stop there, thankfully. If this is all the Bible said about thinking and toxic thoughts, it would be kind of, hey, uh, just have more faith. Just do it. Think about better things. But the Bible doesn't just say that. The Bible goes on to say more, like Romans 12, 2, where Paul's like, listen, don't be like the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And the only reason Paul would say have your mind renewed is because your mind needs renewal. You're broken. God knows it. Jesus came because of the brokenness. And so that is the first place the Bible starts when it comes to mental illness and toxic thinking. But it doesn't stop there. The second thing the Bible is clear about is the role of community in our fight against depression. So that means two things. It means the people on the video represent your community and other people here are are broken and struggling like you are, and we're in this together, that's part of it. But where the Bible comes in is in representing and demonstrating biblical heroes of faith who are an absolute mess. So, Old Testament figures that stand above, head and shoulders above the rest. The prophet Elijah, for example, who was so holy, he didn't even have to die. God sent a limo, like Old Testament limo, to come and take him to heaven. Like, that was, you're, he's one of two people in the Bible that, that God did that for. And, and, uh, and yet, he still struggled deep. He didn't, he didn't like work his way into depression. He, it came over him. Right? The circumstances around him led him to feel increasingly depressed to the extent that in 1 Kings 19.4, he tells God, just end me. I've had it. I don't want to live anymore. And this is the prophet Elijah. 
And Job expresses similar sentiments. And, and then you've got, you know, King David, who is like one of the most, three most important people in the Old Testament. King David, a man after God's own heart. King David wrote half the Psalms. King David, great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus himself, who was caught in a deep cycle of depression that came and went, right? So David wrote the Psalms, and in and, and some of these Psalms, you just see the depression coming to the surface. David wrote Psalm 22, which Jesus quoted from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That famous line Jesus said. He's quoting David, who said it a thousand years before. David felt forsaken, forgotten, even though he was a man after God's own heart. Don't tell me it's just about believing more, or just about having more faith, or just about getting more religion. No, King David was depressed. And it goes deeper from there. Psalm 69, David wrote, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I'm drowning. I'm overcome. He says, I'm overwhelmed. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for you, God. And then Psalm 6, David goes on, I'm weary from my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. David. And it doesn't just end with the Old Testament either, like everything gets better in the new. Well, not, not exactly. I mean, Jesus himself, although he wasn't, you know, suicidal or anything, clearly struggled with acute anxiety in the Garden of Gethsemane when they were coming to crucify him. Clearly it's there. And some have gone on so far as to say that Jesus even knew what depression was like, that he struggled some with depression. I mean, this is, after all, the man the Bible calls a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And Hebrews 14 or 415 says, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect in every respect was tempted as we are, and yet without sin. If you're here and you know what depression is like, I need you to know that so does Jesus. So does Jesus, our Savior. And so the question then is, uh, why would the Bible writers go out of their way to divulge such delicate details about Biblical heroes' lives and vulnerabilities. Why? I've heard Bible critics say that the Bible sounds like a myth. It sounds like a legend, made-up stuff, fiction, you know? If that is the case, then the Bible would be atypical of a myth or a legend, given that half of the heroes on its pages are suicidal sad sacks. Like, they can't even get their own lives together. They can't get their thoughts right. That's not a myth. It's not a legend. That's real life. It's a real story about a real God who knows us for real, and he knows our struggles. And so the second thing I want you to know, if you struggle or someone you love struggles, not only are you broken, you are not alone. You are not alone in this room. You are not alone in the scope of the story God is telling in the world from the Bible times until now. You are broken, and you are not alone. Third, and finally, the Bible um, connects, rightly connects, the struggle we have with depression with a crisis of identity. And what depression does, when you listen to the voice of depression for long enough, depression tells you that you are everything you're not. 
That depression will tell you, better said, that you're not everything that you are. Depression will tell you you're not worthy of love. You're not living a life of purpose or meaning. You're not doing anything with your life. You're not forgiven. You're not loved. You're not everything that you should be. And that creates in you an identity crisis and your identity becomes connected with those toxic thoughts. Listen, that's not the story that the Bible tells. The New Testament Christians had this crazy idea that they got from Jesus. They knew him and walked with him. That when Jesus died on the cross, so did their toxic thoughts. So when Jesus died on the cross, so did my depression. Now, why do I still deal with depressive episodes and depressive thoughts and toxic patterns? Like, because even though the victory is won, we still are battling in the aftermath. We still have the post-war skirmishes that we just hold on by faith to get through. But the power that depression used to have over me is dead when I put my faith in the cross. And my identity is no longer in those voices that tell me I'm not anything I really am. My identity is now in the cross of Christ. And now, because the cross is my identity, I know that even though I still struggle with depression from time to time, that I'm forgiven and I'm loved and I'm worth dying for. Things that depression would never let me believe. And you are too, no matter how deep it's gone, no matter how deep it is today, you're forgiven and you're loved, and you're worth dying for. Not just anyone will die for you. God himself died for you and put to death whatever you were, whatever you think you've been, to bring to life who you truly are. And so in, in, the, in the New Testament, we find examples of this kind of thinking, like in 1 Corinthians, um, in Galatians. We've got a couple of passages will show you 2 Corinthians 5.17 and Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. We've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ is living in me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So I'm not healed from depression, but I now have a defense when it comes my way. And three things happened in my 30s that brought that on, and I'll close with this, but when I was 33, I came to faith in Jesus, even though I pretended to be a Christian my whole life off and on. I came to faith in Jesus at 33. At 34, as I was taking my faith more seriously, I realized that even though I gave myself to Jesus, I was still getting depressed. And so the Christians who were closest to me, my closest sort of circle, my hedge of support, they pushed me to my first therapy session. First therapy session of my life at 34. It was a human and not a robot. And I was, I was diagnosed with the ADD thing, and I had no idea, as I said in the video, that there was a connection, a well-documented connection between serious ADD and uh, depressive episodes, depressive cycles. There is. I know. I feel similar. <laughs> and... So I got treatment. I stayed in therapy this whole time. I'm still in it and every month. And then I uh, got medication, you know, 
which some churches might, you might have heard from churches that that's not a thing you should do, but I, I don't believe that. The third thing that happened is when I was 35, we moved to Texas. And there's just less to be depressed about in Texas. Um, so <clears throat> uh, I, I, I shouldn't have made that joke because uh, you can still be depressed in Texas, believe me. Um, but um, part of it was real for me because my family is from Texas. I was coming home to a, a greater network of support. You know what I mean? But if I had done any one of those things and not the other two, I wouldn't be standing here today saying the things that I'm saying. If I had only come to faith in Christ, or if I had only come to Texas, or if I had only gone to see the therapist, I wouldn't be standing here. If I had only gone to see uh, the therapist and not gone to Texas or not gone to Jesus, that would just be, you know, chemistry, medicine. And if I had only come to Texas without going to Jesus or without going to therapy, that's just geography. That means nothing. And if I had only come to Jesus, this is really tricky. This part's tricky for a preacher to say. And I wrestle with this because I'm supposed to tell you that all you need is Jesus. Let me tell you, I've known a lot of people who were told that all they needed was Jesus when in fact they needed more support day to day. Community, professional help, love shown to them daily. And some of them are no longer walking on this earth. So you're not going to hear me say that. It's true that all you need is Jesus, but only so long as you allow Jesus to lead you into a deeper walk toward more healing, toward recovery, toward community. Because sometimes you can come to religion and still those voices will tell you to self-isolate. Those voices will tell you not to get real, not to be vulnerable, right? And so you'll say, I'm a Christian, but still you'll be going deeper into the depths of it on your own, and that is not God's will for your life, right? And so we need a, a different approach here. And I pray, I pray that we never become the kind of church where it's not okay to be real and authentic and vulnerable, but I also have to tell you that for that to be true for you, for you to receive that with any integrity means you have to reframe or recalibrate your understanding of church. You did not wake up and go to church today. You're not at, in church right now. Not in its fullness. You're in worship right now. You woke up and went to worship, and that's good. That's a part of the experience. But don't let yourself fall into the impression that this is it. Real church doesn't happen in a room like this where you're all facing in the same direction at some weirdo, you know, in rows. Like, that's not the fullness of church, real church happens in 50 living rooms across Houston every week from Sunday afternoon to Saturday night. That's where it really happens because that's where you can really be vulnerable. You can't really be vulnerable here. When the announcement person says, say hi to each other, you're all like, hey, how you doing? And the rest, you have to say I'm fine because it's so weird if you don't. If you're honest in that moment, just over coffee, you're like, I'm falling apart. I have no hope. It's just... And then they're like, well, I'm new here. It's my first time. And it's, you know, it's like, you can't. This is not where you get real and vulnerable. You can get real and vulnerable with God in your heart, and that's good. But in community, that happens in the week. And the question is, as the new year begins, will you do what it takes, re 
arrange your schedule. I know you're busy. I know you got a lot going on. I know I've seen, I've heard you tell me how, how busy you are. Every time I ask you to do something, I'm so busy. Okay, I get it. However, you're in control of your schedule more than you want to admit. So will you recalibrate your life as the new year starts to make room for authentic community so that when the darkness comes, when the storms arrive, when the unexpected happens, and you're flat on your back, the only number you have to call won't be the office number here at the story that nobody ever answers. You won't be like texting me up on Facebook, like, help me. I don't even read Facebook messages. I'm sorry. Like, it's, I'm not telling you not to reach out to the church office or to me. I'm just telling you as the story continues to grow, the leaders of the story aren't able to be there for everybody like maybe we once were. And you're going to need to create more circles and more community and more intimacy where you can be real together and love each other unconditionally. And I know it's weird to join a group of people that you don't already know we have a really low success rate with trying to assimilate a new person into an existing group. It's like you're crashing someone else's party. But that's why we're always starting new groups. And in the next couple of weeks, we got like 15 new groups that are starting. And you can be a part of them from the ground level. A charter member. You can be the one giving the stink eye to new people later. You know what I mean? Like, that's why we do that. The question is, are you going to make space for it or not? Are you going to prepare for the unexpected by building and accepting the support that God has for you before the storm hits. You're broken, but you're not alone. You are a child of God. Happy New Year. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the hope that you gave us at the cross, the reminder of who we really are. Not broken sinners just defined by what we've done the mistakes that we've made or the toxic things we've thought but redeemed forgiven and beloved children of God defined by the cross God thank you for that reminder today and I pray that we would be willing to take action and not just go home Go about our business as usual, Lord. We love you. I pray for each one here who might be struggling deeply and mightily for the courage to take steps toward healing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.